Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to bless this time and anointed. Let your spirit guide and lead us as we look at these verses. And we just thank you for your word and for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 19. We're going to start at verse 10. Uh, we're right in the middle of the prophecy against Egypt. Uh, talked about the Nile stopping to run and the, the kingdom going to be, be destroyed. The fishermen were going to lose their jobs, so we're going to continue now from there, starting at verse 11. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The counsel of the wise counsels, counselors of Pharaoh has become brutish. How say you unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient, of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are the wise men? And let them tell you now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts has proposed upon Egypt. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. And they have seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. The Lord has mingled the perverse spirit of, in the midst thereof. And they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, as a drunken man staggering in his vomit. Neither shall there be any work for Egypt, which is the head or tail, branch or rush may do, in that day shall Egypt be like unto woman, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shakes over it. All right, we're going to stop there for just a minute or two and look at this. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Now, Zoan is an old name for the city of Tanis, which is up in the delta region of Egypt, one of their, one of their big cities, one of their famous rich cities. It's very well known in, in archaeological circles and everything. And it's a very famous city. It's up in the Nile Delta. And it says, their princes are fools or ones who despise wisdom or who, or who mock when guilty. How many times have we met somebody that is mocking when guilty? That, you know, and this is, happens, especially in our world today, when people are getting further and further away from God, when they find that they can't defend their position or, they, or they're feeling too guilty, what do they do? They attack the person who's, who's making them have to face their, their in unknowledge or their in, their in uh, hospitable ways. And we're getting lots of people that just attack. You can't have a discussion hardly anymore without people saying, well, you're just, you know, and they, they, they criticize you and call you names and it says this is what they're doing. The, the princes of Zoan are fools. They mock. They're mocking those that are, that are that are coming against them. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh is brutish, has become brutish. And brutish literally means as, uh, uh, stupid and dull-hearted. Okay? Their, their, their wise men are giving bad advice. And this is something, the further we get from God, the more brutish counsel gets, the more brutish their ideas get. We're seeing it in our country as we're going forward that you know, much of what's said doesn't make any sense. There's no wisdom in it at all, and yet everybody agrees with them. And it's like, how can you, you know, how can you agree with all this stuff going on? Because they're getting away from God's standards, his morals, his right and wrong. And the further we get from right and wrong by God's standards, the worse things keep spiraling downward. And it all started in America with this whole idea that, that truth is relative. There's no absolute truth. And people have bought into it. And you'll hear people say, well, that's your truth. Well, I'm sorry, truth is truth. It's not my truth, it's not your truth. It is either true or it's not true. 
But this world has bought into the fact idea that there is no truth. It's whatever you want it to be. And once you get to that point, anything goes. As long as you want to say it's okay, then it's, you know, who's going to tell you it's wrong because they're, they're totally convinced that there is no right and wrong, no absolutes. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in our world, and our government is buying into it. And it's very hard when we're trying to be Christians to live in a world that doesn't believe that there's absolute truth. Because you're always the target of, well, how can you dare be so intolerant to say that Jesus is the only way? How can you be so intolerant to say that fornication is a sin? How, you know, and all these different things that we come up with, and they say, you know, well, you know, something wrong with you, that you don't, you don't, you haven't grown to accept whatever. And my answer to that, and I've said it over and over again, we're not growing and evolving into something better. We're, re, we're retreating back to what things were before Jesus and the church was established. This is what we're going into is what ha used to happen all the time in the past and still happens in countries and er areas that don't know Jesus. You know, we, we look at our, our, our world and where we're headed and we're headed to the place where Asia and the Middle East and, and Africa have been that aren't Christianized. You know, when we look at this and saying their, their wise counselors have become brutish, dull, stupid, and we buy into this stuff, and it's not just Egypt. You know, this one applies to our world. The further we get away from God, the more unwise counsel gets. And it's very important. And then it says, how say you to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise and the son of the, of the ancient kings. You know, so they're saying, you know, Pharaoh, you're wise. You're, you're, you're part of this ancient kingdom. And they're going, how can you say this? With all the decisions they're going, there's no wisdom. And again, remember, wisdom is applied knowledge. What do you know? We know things from the scripture, and we apply what we learn. And this is the most important thing. There are many people who read the Bible and don't apply anything they read. They just say, well, God, I learned lots of things. Okay, you really learned something, but what are you going to do with it? And this is something I've shared with people. I would rather have people learn just one or two things and apply them than to even have the whole Bible memorized and not apply any of it. Because then you're not, it's not doing you any good if you're not applying it. So when we read scripture, we should be looking at, God, what does this mean? Okay. This story isn't really good. It's a great story, but what does it mean to me today? How do I use this story? And this is why I try each time we do the studies to bring it into, this is where we're at today. This isn't just something that happened 2,000, 4,000 years ago. It is important to us today. And we see this over and over. Our world is getting further away from God. There's no wisdom in our world. It's, it's funny. I talked to so many people out of the prison, a lot of the staff even, that talk nonsense. You know, they talk nonsense, and you point it out, and they go, well, no, it's no big deal. When I was going to college, and people would say exactly opposite points of view in the same sentence a lot of times, and I pointed out to them, well, I have no problem. I can believe both of them. I go, so the sun's hot and cold at the same time, and you have no problem saying that, and they wouldn't. You know, maybe not quite that extreme, but they would say exact opposites and have no problem with it. And that's the problem with the, when you don't hold truth. You can say opposite opinions in the same breath and have no problem with it. And your counsel has become dull and stupid. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny when you point these things out to people and they go, well, no, no problem. It's like, okay. 
if you if you really think that and you know but this is where God is saying it says verse 12 where are they where are your wise men let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed for Egypt okay he says okay you got wise people let them let them tell you what God's gonna do you they think they're really wise they, they think they're really knowing on what's going on let them tell you this is again part of my problem with with America and most of the world right now is God is poised for judgment on our world because of all the sin that's going on that's being accepted by the governments. All through history, when, when sin becomes rampant in, the, in, a, in a civilization, it falls. We're looking at the death toll for America and most of Europe because of all the sin that's being accepted and promoted, not just accepted, but promoted. And when it gets promoted, that is the death toll for, for, for civilizations and they'll be replaced by something else. Eventually, they'll be replaced by the Antichrist. But we look at history, and each, each great nation and each civilization has fallen down when they start accepting sin. And we want to see this as a, as a thing that's going on that we've got a warning in front of us. If the world does not repent, God's going to bring judgment. And the sad thing is, it seems to be the world now. There doesn't seem to be anybody... You know, usually it's just been one civilization and another's poised to take over. But I don't see any nation out there that's ready to take over that's a godly nation, which is an indication that we're close to the end days because he'll take it out and there's nobody to take over but the Antichrist. Can God change it? Absolutely. He can have a, re he can have a great revival. And I'd love to see it. Not counting on it, but I'd love to see a great revival. I'd love to see my grandchild grow up in a you know, nation that's been through a revival and be able to see good times. As it is right now, I'm afraid for what he's going to grow up to see. And this is what he's saying. You know, your princes are, you know, your wise men are so smart. Tell us, what, is, what has God got planned? Remember Joseph when, when Pharaoh had his dream and nobody could interpret it and he had to go find, none of his wise men could tell him what the dream was and Joseph showed up. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has his dreams and none of his wise men can tell him what it is and Daniel shows up. Says, okay, your wise men don't know. God is showing you the future. I'm here to show you what God is, God is going to do. And this is one of the things, when we are following God, we have the ability to be able to tell people, this is what God says. There's judgment coming if we don't respond correctly to him. And this is what he's telling them. Verse 13, the princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived, deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. So it says the, the princes of Zoan have been fools. So now he repeats it. In this case, it's become fools. They've forgotten. Noph is another name for Memphis, the capital, one of the capitals at that time of Egypt. Uh, so this is nation that's there and then it says their princes are deceived you know they're beguiled they don't know any better how many people do we meet they're beguiled and deceived the world without Christ is that way the sad thing is there's so many Christians that don't get into God's word and don't study and they're being deceived they're being deceived by everything the world teaches and this is one of the reasons I keep telling us we need to be careful what we allow in our minds because it's so easy to be deceived 
We, we shared just the other day, how often do we find ourselves talking about something and we get in the middle of a conversation and realize we've entered into territory that we shouldn't be talking about. We, we're, we're being silly, we're being, being risque, we're, we're, we're committing gossip, whatever, whatever side you want to go into. And God tells us that we are going to be accountable for every idle word we speak. It is serious to just let ourselves speak in the flesh and, and downplay and, and say, oh, well, I was just, just having fun. Nobody, nobody was really hurt. And God says, you are definitely. You're going to have to be accountable for it. You filled that person's mind with evil thoughts or bad thoughts. You're going to be accountable for it. They're going to be accountable for listening. Okay? We are not you know, just free because, okay, well, God, I didn't say it. I just listened. You know, you're just as accountable for the listening as you were for, for saying. Because you should have been saying, no, this is not godly. We're not going to go there. We need to stop it. When we get into those things, we need to, somebody in the group has to finally say, you know, no, this isn't what we should be doing as, you know, as God's children. This is not what we should become, you know, be, being doing. And you can stop a lot of things. You know, I don't get involved in a lot of rumors because people know that I'm not going to listen. You know, when, and I don't get a whole lot of people talking to me about other people because my usual answer is, you know, you can, let's go talk to this person. You can tell me anything you want to tell me about them as long as they're here. You know how many people have taken me up on that in the last 30 years? Zero. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about somebody in front of them. So I go, if you're not willing to talk to me about them in front of them, I don't need to hear it. I don't need to. And some people think, well, you're the pastor. You need to know these things. I go, no, I don't need to know anything about the people after their flesh. If they want me to know something, they will tell me, and I can pray for them specifically. If God wants me to know, he will let me know and show me. Uh, and he's done that in the past. I worked in a place where there was more homosexuals than straight people, and God showed me who every one of them were. You know, why? Because he wanted me to know. Not that I could judge them, not because I could be, you know, but I could be on guard and watch what was going on around them. So you know, this, is, this is what he's going to do. He'll let me know what I need to know. He will let you know what you need to know. Yeah. And it's an amazing thing when God just lets you know. And it says you're, they're, they're deceived. And then these princes have seduced Egypt. They went the wrong way. And they were supposed to be the stay, the, the strong part of, of the tribes. And they're leading the nation wrong. And this is our politicians today, leading our nation wrong. Now, part of the problem is that churches aren't, you know, Christians aren't electing godly people. And the church for years and decades stayed away from politics saying, well, we don't want to get involved with it. You know, we'll let the country go to hell because we don't want to, we don't want to be involved with electing people. And this is why I say, as Christians, we need to get to the polls and we need to look at who agrees with the Bible, at least what they tell us, and vote for those people. Vote for people who are going to have godly stands on important issues. And you've got to determine what the important issues are. I have my important issues that I vote on. And you know, it's not all of what's been you know, broadcast by the networks most of the time. I look at people, who's going who's to stand against abortion? Who's going to stand against euthanasia? Who's going to stand for, for, for life? Those things are my important thing. You know, where they are on certain other topics, you know, I really don't care. Because that, if they are righteous people, they're going to have good standards in other places. And those are the things I look for. And you all look for whatever you think is important because it's important. And that's why we give the voter's guide to talk about things that are important. 
really important. You know, you know, and I don't care a lot about certain other things because they're in God's hand. You know, you know, I'm for a strong government, uh, you know, a military, but you know what? I'm not going to vote for people just because they're strong on military. If they're strong on military and, and, and will you know, vote for abortion and, and, and death, I'm not going to vote for that person. Because God, you know, we could have the strongest military in the world and still be defeated. Egypt was when the exodus happened. They were the strongest nation at the time, and God destroyed them with all the plagues. God's perfectly capable of taking out strong nations if it's time for them to be taken out, and he's perfectly capable of, of protecting weak nations if it's in his interest for them to stay in existence. And Israel's a great example of that. whole world coming against them on more than one occasion and withstand it. You know, so we look at this and say, God, what is it you want? You know, they're making fools. They're being made fools. Verse 14, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof as a drunken man staggering in his vomit. Okay, and this is kind of a very strong picture. <laughs> okay, he says, number one, because of their evil, God has sent a spirit to make them go even deeper into it. When, when Pharaoh resisted in, the, in Exodus, it said he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart. About the fifth plague, it said God hardened his heart. Okay, Pharaoh, you want to keep hardening your heart? We're just going to make sure we take this all the way out to the end game. If we keep hardening our heart toward God and rejecting him, eventually he says, fine, we'll just let your heart get very hard. He gives us what we want. We just don't know what we want. And it says he's, he sent a perverse spirit to make them err even more. And then it says, in a very interesting thing, to err in every work. They, they were to get so bad that every decision that those princes, every decision of the nation was wrong and bad. Taking us back to the, before Noah, when Noah was preaching to them, it says the, every imagination of man's heart was evil. We're a long ways from that bad, but you know, we're not that far away in some cases. I've met a lot of people who just do evil, and whatever, they, whatever comes to their mind, they do. No conscience, apparently, no, no check or balance in their life. They just, well, I want to do bad, I do it. And luckily, there are not a whole lot of them out there, but they're, they're becoming more and more. And it says at the end days, every imagination of man's heart is going to be evil, just as it was in the days of Noah. And, you know, it's scary. We're getting a lot closer. People approve of evil. We're having people call what God calls sin, they're calling good. And when whatever God calls good, they're calling, calling evil. You know, how many people now have heard somebody say, well, marriage, no, don't, you know, it's a bad thing. Don't get married. That's a prevalent example of our young people. Part of it is because they've seen every marriage they know fall apart. And they're getting to the place where, why bother? <laughs> God says be married, but who cares? And they're calling fornication, living together, good. They're calling, you know, adultery, good. They're calling homosexuality, good. They're calling all these different things, you know, good or at least acceptable. You know, they're not willing to call them sin. And we see it over and over. You know, one of the things that bothers me is we're seeing things like drunkenness being changed to the term alcoholic. Alcoholic is a disease. And so they can say, well, I'm just an alcoholic. I'm not a drunk. I have, I have a sickness. 
I have a problem with that. God calls drunkenness sin. If you redefine it as a sickness, then how can you be held accountable for it? And this is what happened with homosexuality. Homosexuality started out as a sin, became a sickness, then became acceptable. It's not too far down the road before that sickness becomes acceptable. And we look at this, and every single sin out there, if you open up the psychological dictionaries, encyclopedias, every sin is in there as a sickness. Satan is working to get them reclassified from sin to sickness. That's a scary thing to happen because that makes people fools because they're going to get into all these sins and go, well, you know, it's no big deal. I'm just sick. I'm not a thief. I'm a kleptomaniac. I just can't help myself. I've got this sickness. I just can't help myself. I steal just because. You know, some of, the, some of these leaders who have been caught up in adultery and fornication go, well, you know, I'm just addicted to sex. I, don't, I can't help myself. I have a sickness. I just can't help myself. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just it. But, but once, you, once you say it's a sickness, you have an excuse. And the problem is with anybody when they have a sin, until they accept that it is a sin, they're not going to look for a, a fix on it. As long as I'm just sick or I've stumbled into these things, I'm never going to seek help. I'm never going to try to get out of it until I recognize it as sin. In your 12-step programs, in Celebrate Recovery, all of it is the first step is I've got a problem. I have an issue here, and it's a sin issue. Now God, now I can go to God and say, even if I do nothing else, now I'm going to God and saying, God, I've got this sin issue I need your help for. And I'm starting to address it with God's help. But until then, I'm just a fool walking around, you know, saying, no, I can sin, I'm, I'm just sick, it's not sin. You know, foolish. Foolish decisions, foolish areas. If you have an area in your life, then you need to be able to address it and say, God, it's a sin. Humble ourselves before God and say, God, I've got this sin. I need your help. And I, we all have areas in our life that are sins, and sometimes we know about them and, and not ready to address them. Sometimes we don't even know they're sin. This has happened so, time, so many times when you're reading through the Bible and all of a sudden something comes up and God says, I want this out of your life. You know, uh, God, I didn't even know that was a problem. God says, I think it's a problem. Get it out of your life. And then you have a choice. You get it out of your life or you, you're going to have to deal with the guilt of doing something that God said not to do. And you know, this can be something really simple. And this, many times those things are not a thou shalt not. It's easy to use a thou shalt not. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not, shall not commit fornication. You know, there's all kinds of thou shalt nots in the Bible, but there are also things God says, you know, I think I want you to take this principle and apply it to your life. You know, I want you to be able to do more. Now, and this is something sometimes it's, you know, many times in my life I've been reading through the Bible and all of a sudden I'm going, oh, you know, God, are you talking to me about this, this part of my life? It's not a thou shalt not God. God says, yeah, but it is now for you. It is for you. And these are the things we need to be careful of. Sometimes we take those issues that God tells us and we try to apply them to other people. And it's not necessarily a thou shalt not for them. For me, I can't smoke. To me, it would be a sin to smoke. For other people, it may not be. I'm not going to drink. It's, it, to me, it would be a sin to drink. But to other people, it may not be. You know, now, if you want to take it too far, you know, then yes, you're probably going too far. If you go beyond moderation... But each person has to deal with their sin before, their, before God. You know, we're told to honor our government, pray for those who are in rule over us. Well, for me, God has said you need to be praying for those people. 
Now, he did it many presidents ago when I was really critical of a president. He kept going, are you praying for that person? If not, be quiet. And at the time, I wasn't praying for that person. And you know, when I started praying for the person, I started talking about them anyway. Not because they got any better, but God, I put it in God's hands. And this is the very important thing for us. If we just put more in God's hands, we won't worry about this. And this is what I've said, you know, if you're having a problem with somebody, the very first thing to do is, are you praying for them? If you're not praying for them, you don't have, a business, you don't have any business even going to them to try to help them improve their life if you don't love them enough to pray for them. And then when you're praying for them, you don't care about what they're doing as much because you put it into God's hands. Now, God may tell you to go talk to them. That's not, I'm not saying you'll never talk to somebody if you're praying for them. But in, until you're praying for them, you have no business going, you know, you've got this problem in your life you've got to fix. Because probably your issue is that you need to get it out of your life. And we need to be able to look at these things. Uh, and then it says they're, they're like the drunken man staggering in his own vomit. Now, I've never experienced this, but I have been told that a lot of people, when they get so drunk, they'll find themselves waking up face down in their own vomit, passed out. Now, I don't ever want to experience that. I don't even want to see it. But it's a picture that's used several times in the Bible, so I'm pretty sure that it is a valid picture. It's not pretty. It's, I'm sure it's not pretty. I'm talking to people who obviously know, so I've never been there. I don't want to be there, but it, the picture is oftentimes in the Bible, and I've heard many people talking about you know, getting so drunk that they end up in that, in that position, and that's what he's telling The nation is so bad that they're in a place where they don't want to be. You know, completely don't want to be. Uh, Neither shall be there be any work for Egypt, which is the head or tail, branch or rush, may do. And those, we've talked about the head and tail before. That's talking about the, the strong and the weak, the, the high in rank or the low in rank. The branch and the reed talks about the, the palm and the reed, the high and the low again. So basically saying there's no work for those who are great or those who are or low. Okay? He's saying that's how bad they are. No work, and or no good work, is what he's talking about. How bad does a place have to be for that to happen? Yeah, we've seen nations that have fallen from more from higher places, and Egypt has pretty much fallen into that place. It hasn't gotten all this way, but Egypt is not the strong power that it used to be. You know, they're you know second-rate country within the Middle East. You know, fairly strong within the Middle East, but as far as the world goes, they don't have a lot of authority and, and power. God has pulled, pulled them down because of their sin. And there are many nations that are like that. Many nations that have liked that have had great power. Think of Italy, which was the center of Rome. You know, it's not a very strong power anymore. You know, uh, all these other nations, Babylon, Assyria, all these different places don't have the power when God took them down they still exist, but they're not the powerhouse they used to be. England still has a lot of power, but nothing like it did for, for, for many centuries where it ruled pretty much the world. America is dwindling, and if we continue not following God, we're going to be the same place where we don't have the influence and power. Why? Because we've rejected God, and we've gone away from what he's, he declares to be honest. In our own lives, the further we get from God, the less power we get in every aspect of it. We follow God and we get authority. 
God gives authority, whether it's official authority or just people respect what you say because of where you're at. And this is something we want to look at, and God says there's work. In verse 6, in that day shall Egypt be likened to one of the women and shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord which he shakes over them. And I know this is derogatory toward women, but he says they're, they're going to be fearful. They're going to be very fearful. They're going to have no courage. And, you know, this is something the further you get from God, the more you fear just about everything. You know, when you're in the center of God's will, will and you know you're in the center of his will, you can be very fearless. Because... As I said, nothing is going to happen to you when you're in God's will until he's ready for, you, for it to happen to you. And I, and I love that. You know, I cannot die until God says it's time to go home. Doesn't mean I won't get hurt, but I cannot die until God says it's time for me to go home. And if I'm where he wants me to be, even when I'm hurt, it is his will. Okay? And this is what the, the disciples kept saying every time they were beat. Well, thank God I was worthy of suffering for Christ. Now, most of us probably don't have that attitude toward God and his desire. You know, uh, the whole idea of where are we and where are we going with, uh, on that, you know, for many Christians, it's the idea of if I die, I get to go to heaven. You know, I, I love it when I read, uh, watched the warm, uh, Richard Wormbrand torture for Christ, and he told, he told us abuser, I go, he goes, well, I can kill you. And he goes, all, we, all you do is send me to the one I love faster. You know, is that really our attitude? You know, are we not fearful of anybody because the worst they can do is send us home? Or actually, the best they could do is send us home? You know, the worst they can do is hurt us? You know, and then we just celebrate that we were worthy of suffering for God. Now, if you're suffering because you're just a bad person then, and you're sinning, don't, you know, it's nothing, no glory in it. But when you're suffering for Christ... There's great glory in that. There's great glory in it. And all through the, the history, people have said, thank you, I'm suffering. You know, I love Jeremiah. He said, you know, I've been in so much trouble. I'm, God, I, everything's going wrong for you. I'm paraphrasing. He goes, I am not going to speak for you anymore. <laughs> and the very next words, the very next verse says, his word burned in my mouth and I could not help but speak. Have you ever been there where you just could not help but speak? knowing that you weren't supposed to, that somebody was going to be mad at you if you spoke, but it just, God was there saying, speak. Speak my words. And stand up for me. And this is, God saying, this nation is just going to become a bunch of wimps. <laughs> They're not going to not stand for anything. They're going to be afraid of everything. And I've met people who are just afraid of everything. They're timid. They're, they're reserved. They don't have God to stand on. And they won't take a stance because they're too worried somebody's going to say something bad about them or, or do something you know, to hurt them. So they don't say anything. They don't take a stand for anything. This is what God's saying they're going to be like. They're not going to take a stand. Bad if it's a nation not taking a stand. All right, verse 17. And the, Lord, and the land of Judah shall be in a terror unto Egypt. Everyone that makes mention thereof shall be afraid of himself. Because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear unto the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar of the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and, a, 
and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord and the host of the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors and, and shall send them a savior and a great one and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day and shall do sacrifice and oblation. And the, yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. All right. What a, what a picture. Egypt following God. And remember, part of when we look at this, when we read the word Egypt, this is a little story about Egypt, but Egypt also stands for the world in general. All right? When, when you read the word Egypt in the Bible, oftentimes it is referring to the world and the way the world thinks. Uh, the people of Israel during the 40 years of wandering wanted to go back to Egypt. I want to go back away from God into the old way of things. Here God says Egypt has been following away, but they're going to be called. The world has been called to God. And not this particular verses in its fulfillment, but in a spiritual way, the world has been called to God. And it says the land of Judah should be a terror unto Egypt. I don't think that has been true yet. <laughs> I don't think there's any been a time when, when Egypt has been afraid of Judah or Israel. Uh, they've not been real strong against them, but there's not been a fear, and I think this is going to be the millennial kingdom that he's talking about at this point. I think we're switching, we're transitioning into this picture of the millennial kingdom. And Isaiah does this a lot. We've talked a lot how Isaiah, in the middle of a prophecy against people, switches to a prophecy of the end, end days, the millennial kingdom. And remember, the millennial kingdom is when Jesus reigns on this world for a thousand years in perfect righteousness. And Longevity is returned back to human, human beings and they, and they live to be very old, as possibly to the, the majority of the millennial kingdom. The animals become tame again. You can, it says that the lion will lay down with the lamb and the children can play on the, at the hole of the asp and they can play with the, play with the poisonous animals because they're not deadly anymore. Quite a, quite a picture. And that's gonna be the millennial kingdom. And here we see the land of Judah will be a terror unto Egypt and shall be afraid because the counsel of the Lord and he has determined against them to have God's face against you, to have him determine evil upon you. you know, I've, we know people that have had that happen. I've seen this happen where people have been so, especially Christians, if they get so, or people who say they're Christians, who get so against God and his principles, God will turn his back on them and, and make everything seem to be going wrong in their life. And I've seen it happen in the lost people eventually. God's grace eventually says, fine, you don't want, you don't want to respond to my grace? Let's try having you respond to my anger and punishment. That's what the book of Revelation is all about with the, with the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets. God's saying, okay, world, you didn't want to listen to my grace? Let's try my vengeance. And the whole purpose, and we've talked about this so many times, the whole purpose of that is to get people to turn to God. Okay? It's not God just saying, I'm going to be mean to you for seven years. Okay? There's judgment, there's consequence for sin, but his, he's saying, I want you to get to where you accept me. Because what's the very first thing people say when something really bad happens? How can God let this happen? How could he let this happen? Well, at least you're making the right decision. God, you're turning to God. It's funny when, when people who say they're atheists decide that it's God who caused problems. <laughs> and um, 
But you know, this is what he says. This is going to happen. And he says, and in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt shall speak the language of Canaan. Now, most interpreters believe that five cities is a, a statement of all the cities, not just five cities. Um, because there's a lot more than five cities in Egypt, but most of them say this is kind of a, it's like when Jesus said, how many, you know, Peter said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus said, no, 70 times, seven. He wasn't saying forgive them 490 times. It was a idiom to say, just keep forgiving them. Yeah, because he starts going, okay, keep track. Okay, you're on, you're on 487, 489, 499, don't do it again. <laughs> no, he's not saying do that. He says keep forgiving. And most people believe that this five cities is referring to Egypt. <laughs> Egypt as a whole, speaking the language of Canaan. Again, hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Probably not going to happen until Jesus reigns over the world. Because when he reigns, he's going to reign over the entire world from Jerusalem. You know, one, one world government that the world wants to get to is going to happen. It's just going to happen when Jesus makes it happen. And it's going to be with a benevolent monarch. Okay, if you don't know what that means, he's going to be the king. And benevolent means he's a good one. Before that, they spent seven years with the Antichrist being a malevolent monarch, an evil ruler, doing what's best for him and what's wrong for people. And so we see, he says, all these cities are going to speak the language of Canaan that the Lord has, and the Lord, one of them shall be called the city of destruction. God's going to destroy it, just done with. And there's going to be a lot of cities that are going to be destroyed. Because when Jesus reigns in the millennial kingdom, the, the most important thing, it says he reigns with an iron rod. People will behave in spite of their sin nature because they're going to be made to behave. How many times do we hear people say, well, if God was so powerful, he could stop sin? Well, he could. And I've asked people to go, okay, do you really want God to stop all sin and, and bad consequence? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I'll pray for you that God will stop you from being able to make your choices. No, I don't want that. I go, well, you really don't want to see God stop all sin, do you? Well, I want him to stop everybody else. You know, and that's usually the attitude. Well, I want everybody else not to be able to do better, but I want to be able to do what I want. Well, the only way God could stop sin is to stop everybody from doing what they want, which is evil because we are sinners. During the millennial kingdom, he's going to rule with an iron rod, which is why Satan, when he's released at the end of a thousand years, can get so many people to turn against God, because he's going to give them the opportunity to be sinners that they have not had before that. You know, I'm not going to say there's no sin, but it's going to be, no, you're going to stop. You're going to stop. And I almost believe that because he knows the thoughts of man, that he could stop the sin even before it happens. You know, well, I think I'll go out and rob a bank today. Knock, knock, knock on the door. Uh, no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, we talk about thought police. You know, he, can, he could be the ultimate thought police. No, you're not going to do that. You know, you're not going to commit the sin. You're not going to act the way you want. And it's going to be during that period of time what you hear from so many people. Well, if we just had a good environment with no rules and everything, everybody would be good. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you know, if there were no rules, then I guess there'd be no rules to be broken, so everybody would be right. It just wouldn't be a world we'd want to live in. Okay? 
But you know, this is the mantra of the world right now. We're all born really good, and it's, it's all the rules that make us bad. Now, if we didn't have rules, we'd, we'd just be all good people. And that's taught to our college people all the time. Our leaders actually believe that. The ones that have been raised up in the, in the colleges believe that. This is why it is scary to see where, where this country's headed to. I've been educated in that stuff. I've listened to them you know, pile on this bunch of malarkey that doesn't stand up to God's word and say, you guys actually believe this? You know, how many of you have ever raised a kid? You know, you, know, you tell a kid don't do it. Well, that was your problem. You, you gave him a rule. Yeah, don't stick your hand in the fire. Don't stick your hand in the, in the light socket. You might get hurt. Well, no, you shouldn't have given him that rule. Let him learn the hard way. Well, sure, I'd have a dead kid, and then you'd be, then you'd be, then you'd be coming after me for child abuse. You know, uh, but, you know, we need to be so much looking at this. God puts rules on us, not so that we will stop having fun, or, but to keep us from being hurt. And that's his purpose for his rules. Why not, you know, why does he say no fornication? Because he knows the bad parts of what happens when you have a, sex with everybody out there and, and end up with diseases and or, if nothing else, when you have that union, you draw yourselves together in a soul commitment and then you pull it back, to get, pull it back apart when you break it apart. This is why divorce is so hard to God. God says you've been put together as one and then you rip that soul to get apart and people who have had a divorce have ragged edges on their emotions and their relationship with other people from that point on. It is bad. You know, if you think about some people that you know that have had a divorce, even if it's 30, 40 years old afterwards, there's still a ragged edge on them. It may be blunted a little bit, but there's still a ragged edge they have toward that ex-partner. Then you get people that have two or three divorces and they, their, their souls are really ripped. Somebody who is had multiple one-night stands, has a ripped-up soul. And they're suffering, suffering greatly because of it. God can heal it. God can put blessing and, and healing on it. Without God, they're going to have a terrible time, and they're not able to have good relationships with other people because there's all that pain and the, the ripping of the soul. And it's not until afterwards that you really realize how bad it was. You know, not until years after you get done with it going, well, why can't I do, you know, why can't I have a good relationship? I really want to have a relationship with this person. And your soul is so ragged and, and torn up, it's hard to be able to come together. And this is the truth that God gives us. We live according to the way he wants us to live, and there's great blessing. And it's so much deeper than most people understand. You know, the world wants you to believe that you can have an abortion, it's not going to have a problem. So many women have an abortion and struggle for the rest of their life every time they see a child. You know, I have a child they're supposed to be that age. And they, and they suffer. God can heal those things. God can heal those emotions. And I know they're raw for those who have it, but sin has a consequence. And sometimes that consequence is long-term for the rest of your life that you face the consequences. And sometimes we think, well, it's just an innocent thing. It's no big deal. And it, you'll pay for it long term. But God is gracious. God is gracious. He can forgive. 
He can give us peace, even amongst all the consequence of it, He can give us peace. And He's the one that can restore what's been destroyed in our life. God takes the pieces of our life and he puts them back together and he does it supernaturally. He doesn't, he doesn't take the two the pieces of broken wood and, and nail and glue and super glue them. He says, okay, let's join them together and make them perfect. And he's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can restore what has been destroyed by sin when we finally turn it over to him. And then verse 19, And in that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar on the border thereof in the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and a witness unto the Lord, the host of the land of Egypt. And they shall cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And, they shall, and he shall send them a savior, a great one, and he shall deliver them. Great repentance and, and moving toward God in Egypt or the world. In, in the spiritual side, it started at Calvary when God rose from the dead and brought revival and salvation to the world, to the Gentiles. Because the Jews never did. They never went out with God's message to the world. Remember when we studied in the book of Exodus Leviticus that he says, these sacrifices are for the Gentiles. If they come and worship, let them come. And the, and the Jews never did let the Gentiles in. They said, if you want to worship God, you've got to become a Jew. God never said that. He says, if they want to worship them, let them come in. God's heart has always been for the whole world. The Jews put up all these walls and the blocks saying, no, the Gentiles can't come in. And here God is saying again, I want, to come, I want the world, I want Egypt to come to, to them. And God picks Egypt for, the, for, for this because the Jews hate hatred of Egypt. Egypt put them into slavery. They have a great hatred toward them. They have great hatred to all the nations that have put them under, under bondage. But you know, God's saying, they're going to come to me. They're going to follow me. They're going to worship me. There's going to be an altar to, my, to, to me in the millennial kingdom. And as strange as it may sound, the millennial kingdom indicates that there's going to be sacrifices going on in the temple of God. And when we look at this, which sacrifices? Well, I'm not going to go back over all the sacrifices we covered because remember we talked about there's, we as Gentiles usually think of one sacrifice. The Bible talks of five sacrifices. The ones that won't be there, sin offering. Jesus paid the sin offering. The burnt offering will be one that was practiced in the millennial kingdom because that's an offering of dedication. You're saying, God, I give all of myself to you and as an example of myself being given to you, this animal is being burnt. Instead of me being burnt completely for you, the animal, but it's my symbol of my dedication to you. The thanksgiving offerings to God, saying, we're just saying thank you, God, will be part of that millennial kingdom. What won't be there? The trespass offering, because Jesus fulfilled the trespass offering. None of the, none of the sin offerings will be offered during the millennial kingdom. It'll only be the worship offerings that will happen. And we need to be able to come, come to this conclusion that, you know, we need to know more about the offerings. And if you want to go back, go back into the Leviticus series that's on, online and look at Leviticus 1 through about 7. And we did long series. We spent a whole series on each one of those offerings back when we were doing it and what they meant and, and how, how, they, how they represented. Some of those offerings will be, continue into the millennial kingdom and possibly indications that it will go into the new Jerusalem and new heaven and earth, except that there's no death there. So it's, it's kind of a interesting point because sometimes you make it, you don't know whether he's talking about the millennial kingdom or the new heaven and new earth. I'm going to say it's millennial kingdom because there's no death in the, in the new, new heaven and new earth. 
because death is dead. Death has been finally wiped out. So we look at these things and say, God says, I want you to be dedicated to me. The offering, the sacrifice of dedication. And it says, the Egyptians shall know me and they shall give the sacrifice. They, they will vow a vow and, and keep it. They will keep their vows. And we've talked many times about when we make a vow before God, we're to keep it. No matter what. And this is something that our world doesn't get very much into anymore, the keeping of our vows. If we make a vow, wow, who cares? You know, it's, you know I, I had my fingers crossed. You didn't see my fingers crossed. It doesn't mean anything. Um, and God says, no. When you make a vow, you keep it, whether it's to him or others. The scriptures really hold out the old adage, you, you keep your word even if it's going to hurt you. And, you know, one of the examples I use, you make a promise you're going to do something on a, on, a, on a Saturday or a Sunday, and all of a sudden somebody gives you tickets to your favorite ball game or your favorite singer or something on the day you were supposed to go do something that you promised. What do you do? Well, if you're going to be godly, you're going to say, well, I guess I'm giving away my tickets. Okay? Uh, and I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. Not an easy decision. But if you're going to follow God, it really becomes an easy decision. Oh, well, thank you, God. I you know, guess you're going to have to give me tickets some other time to my, to my favorite game or sport or favorite, favorite activity. I've seen many people go, well, you know, I've really got this really, you know, I know I made this promise, but, you know, I've got this great opportunity. Would you, would you let me out of it? And the average person is going to let you out of it for that, you know, but that's not following God's way. It's not really doing it God's way. Because God says, keep your word. Keep your vows. He says, Egypt is, Egypt is going to keep their vows. They're going to follow me. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, and he shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them, and he shall heal them. God disciplines those and then accepts them when they respond. Going back to the revelation and the, and the 21 plagues that are going to hit the world. God's whole purpose is, will you come to me? Will you turn and come to me? And if they do, he's going to accept them. Remember, during the tribulation period, one of the first things God does is he anoints 144,000 Jewish believers to be his witness during the millennial kingdom. And he marks them with a mark of some sort that's spiritual, saying, these ones are going to be protected. And probably everybody that <laughs> comes under their ministry will get that mark and be protected. Because there's a very particular verse where he sends sickness that, that lasts only nine months long, and they can't die, and they wish they were dead. And it says it won't touch those that are marked by God. And you know, he says, all of these, all, I'm smiting you not to, not to hurt you, but to get you to come to me, to change your mind. Now, most people, when they're, when they're hurt by God, are going to reject him. The majority will. We've seen that over and over in history. When God moves against them, the majority turn from God. But you know, God has, al has said there's always just a remnant that follows him, a remnant, a small amount of people that truly follow him. Uh, Elijah said, you know, God, I'm the only one that hasn't bent my knees. And God says, no, no, I've got 5,000 who haven't bent my knees. You go back and do what I told you to do. You know, during the dark ages when, when Catholicism was pushing a, into religion and, and practice and away from the word of God, there was a remnant of Christians that held, the, held God's word tight and would evangelize 
always a remnant. In Russia, back when it was fully under communist rule, there was a remnant of Christian underground church maintaining, maintaining the Christian message. To be honest, even in America that's been a Christianized nation and mostly righteous nation, it's been a remnant who truly follow God even though the rest were semi-following God's ways. You know, even in the 1700s when a lot of people were Christians, a lot weren't. Now they were all righteous, you would have looked at them and said, you know, hey, this guy's a pretty good Christian, especially compared to our day. <laughs> Many of the un, un, you know, non-Christians in that day were more righteous and better than many of our Christians today because that was the environment they lived under. But there was a remnant that truly believed in God. God always holds a remnant. And this is even in the millennial kingdom. He's going to have a remnant following him. Be aware that when you feel like you're isolated and you're the only one, Satan is lying to you. You're not. And if you need the help, say, God, help show me some of the remnants so I can be encouraged. And depending on where you're at, he may show you them sooner than later. But the good thing is when you come out of it and you start sharing it, it's amazing how the remnant comes gathering around you. I've said many times, you know, when Satan tells you you're the only one that's had that sin in your life, you're the only one that thinks that bad, well, number one, go to our memory verse this month, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and say there's no temptation that is overtaking you, but such is common to man. Okay, God, you know, you said it's common. I may not know anybody else that's doing it or having this problem, but you say it's not, 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 I'm not the only one. Tell Satan he's a liar. Because I can guarantee when you get over it and you start giving your testimony about it, all kinds of people are going, yeah, I, used to, I have had that problem. You know, and you're, and you're going to think, well, where were you when I was in the middle of the problem? Why couldn't you have told me then? But the problem is you were being quiet about it and, and everybody was thinking I'm the only one and when everybody's thinking I'm the only one, nobody wants to share that they're struggling with it and because they're not struggling, you know, nobody's sharing it, nobody comes out. And that doesn't mean go out and just tell everybody all your bad things, but you know, there's a time when you say, I'm struggling. I have this struggle. And you may not go stand in the front of the church and make that announcement, but you, you get into a smaller group where you really know you can trust people and you start sharing, I need prayer in this area because I'm really struggling. You'll be surprised how many people will go, all right, you pray for me and I'll pray for you because I'm going through the same exact thing. The same exact thing. You know, it doesn't really matter where, what in your life you're going through. There's issues that everybody goes through. And we need to find those to be able to help us. You know, if you, you know, like I said, you don't stand up in front of the whole church and get condemned by a number of people that aren't, you know, aren't having that problem. But there's certain people that you can just say, you know, hey, I'm really happy. I need your prayer. And you'll be surprised how many times you'll hear, you know, I've got that same problem. Let's just pray for each other. And it's an amazing thing. Amazing thing when we, when we look at it. Right, verse 23. And in that day shall, there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the, and the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrian. In that day shall Israel be the third of Egypt with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of the hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This is Isaiah speaking. Now, you've got to put yourself in Isaiah's period, time period. 
This would be like us, some prophet coming into America and saying, okay, Americans, you guys are going to be really good friends with Russia and China. Now, you know, we're halfway okay with Russia, but we're still not fully there with Russia. We have great problems with China, but imagine if somebody says, you know, there's coming a day when you guys are all going to be friends, and everybody's going to be gods. That's what he's saying here. Egypt, the strong military force, even in, e in Isaiah's day, fairly strong, not, not as strong as they were be before, but still strong. Assyria has just conquered the northern kingdom and is the power at that time. Poor little Israel stood between Egypt and Assyria, and Assyria and Egypt were battling each other. You know, think about being in the middle of two great nations fighting each other, and you're the nation in between. Many of the battles happened in Israel because they just happened to be where the two armies would come together. It got even worse when Babylon took over because Israel was dead center of Babylon and Israel. At least on Assyria, they could go down the coast and not, not bother all of Israel too much, but Babylon ran right through Israel for every battle they wanted to fight against Egypt. And Egypt went through Israel when they were getting ready to fight the Babylonians. And God's saying, hey, all, all you enemies, you're going to be best buds. That's really what it's saying. You're, you know, there's going to be these highways. You're going to be, you're going to be just buddy-buddy. Never happened yet. No, doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime in the near future. But when the millennial kingdom hits and gets there, God's going to say, you're all my people. You're going to be trading amongst each other. You're going to, you know, you're going to have no problems with each other. The, the world wants to have nations without borders. Well, Jesus will have the whole world with no border. It's all his. No, no borders, no nothing, because it's all his. And of course, you could say the whole world is one border, but, you know, but he says all these nations are going to be done away with. They're all going to have no problem with each other. In a weird sense, it is what Satan is trying to get accomplished with one world government. He wants to mimic what Jesus is going to do. The only problem is he's not going to be able to do it. He's going to create one world government theoretically, but there's going to be battles all over the place. There's going to be opposition to his rule. And plus God is going to be judging people, which is not going to make him happy because when the government can't protect its people from, from different things, they rebel against the government. And we see that all the time. You know, even in our own country, we get natural disasters and everybody starts pointing their finger at the government. You didn't do enough or you didn't, didn't do enough to, to keep it from happening. You didn't do enough after it. It's going to be what the Antichrist is going to fight when God pours out all these judgments. You know, well, you're supposed to be this great leader. How come you're not? You know, you're not doing this. You're not taking care of us. When Jesus runs it, he's got the power to make it work. Natural disasters probably aren't going to be happening during the millennial kingdom because he's going to return the world to as close to perfect as a fallen world can be. You know, no, more, no more hurricanes, no more tornadoes, no more earthquakes. Of course, the world has been destroyed by one great earthquake in the, in the Revelation where the mountains fall and the buildings all fall. The whole world shakes on that earthquake, so there's not much left to fall. You know, but he's going to say, we're going to be close. We're going to be close to what it should have been. Can't even imagine what that would be like. A world where you actually plant something, where I could plant something and not kill it. Uh, you know, I, 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 have a, I have a black thumb. You know, if, you, if you want to kill any house plants, give them to me to let me take care of them for two days and they'll be dead. 
Uh, always have been that way. I don't know why, but you know, it's. I don't tend the gardens. When we've planted gardens, I don't tend the garden. I don't tend the house plants. I don't, because if I take care of them, they'll be dead. Huh? Yes, I help people. Don't, I don't worry about trying to help the <laughs> help the plants. <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to always seek after you, not seek after the world. Help us to be wise through the study of your word. Help us to understand what you would have us learn. Help us to apply what you teach us. Lord, as we study your word, keep in the forefront of our minds, how does this apply to my life? How can I, how can I use this in my day-to-day -day walk? And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.